0: Starting on January 11th, Health Power will be posting every Tuesday instead of every Tuesday and Thursday. On Thursdays, starting on the 12th, you're going to get Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. They write books about dogs. I interview them. So if you're a dog lover, I hope you will check it out. Tell your friends, tell your family, also tell them about Health Power. So again, Health Power every Tuesday, Dog Eared with Lisa Davis every Thursday. Hope you'll tune in. Does your dog ignore you when they clearly understand what you want them to do? I'm guessing this is a yes for most people, or maybe I just don't have the best well-trained dogs. (laughs) So every time I pick up my computer and I say, okay, boys, my lab immediately gets up, runs down to my studio where I record. Blue stays on the couch because he's comfortable, my pity. And he just gives me this look like this again. And I'm like, come on, Blue, come on, Blue, come on, Blue, and then he stands at the top of the stairs, like, and just, sta- and I'm Blue, I got, uh, so I've always now like, I got to get down here a little early because Blue, and then finally I'm like, Blue, please come in, and he reluctantly comes and he sits down. And he's like, oh. today I'm talking to Julie Barton, who wrote a book that like shook me to my core. It is called Dog Medicine. How My Dogs Saved Me From Myself. It's a memoir. And I, if you listen to Health Power, you know I flip and love memoirs. Now over here at Dog Ears, I love them even more here when it's about dogs and their effect on people. It's a New York Times bestseller. It is absolutely no surprise. Let me tell you a little bit about Julie before we bring her in. Julie Barton has an MFA in writing. I'm not at all surprised. Her writing was absolutely perfect from vermont college of fine arts has been published in several magazines and journals including brainchild two hawks quarterly the huffington post louisiana literature and the south carolina review and was nominated for a Pushcart prize she lives in northern california with her husband two daughters and a small menagerie of pets julie barton welcome to dog eared with lisa davis I, i'm so honored to have you
1: oh thank you so much i'm so honored to be here
0: Julie, when did your love of dogs begin?
1: Uh, very young. Uh, 100% around age. I can't move. Well, we found our first dog in a car wash in the winter, and it was all frozen. And I was probably five or six. And um, and she lived a long time. She was beautiful. Midnight was her name. And I just think, you know, in a family where you don't always feel 100% safe, having unconditional love and attention that's not going to wane or go away is life-changing. So it started very early.
0: You know, I really enjoyed reading about you and Midnight and going out into the woods and your wonderful connection with somebody named Alice. Tell us about Alice.
1: Yeah. Alice is still there. I still go see her. She's um, lost a really big branch a couple years ago me nervous but she she was a beech tree she's probably by now she's at over 150 years old and um, she was in addition to animals my she was like my grandmother I didn't have a local grandmother and she was really very much like come sit with me and I thought you know as a kid I thought she had feelings and she loved me a lot. She told me her name. Um, I worried about her a lot when it was cold and there was a scene in the book where I wrapped blankets around her trunk. Cause I was, you know, worried about it. And, and I think that was one of the first times I realized because of the way people reacted to me trudging out in the snow and putting safety pinning baby blankets to the bottom of an enormous tree. <laughs> um, <laughs> they reacted i was like oh this isn't something people do so that was sort of one of the first seeds of self-consciousness about the way that i saw the world um and so the you know the one of the healing modalities that i used after losing bunker was returning to that knowing really returning to the communicating with all beings and trusting that that's that that's real hard to do it so easy to be like this is stupid <laughs> you
0: know yeah no I find so much joy and in, in, and I mentioned this in an interview recently solace in nature and I think that and we'll get into it soon what you had to deal with at home I think to have that resilience and that you know ability to go out and have a tree that feels like a grandmother is an incredibly important thing to a child especially what you were going through yes Your book touched on so many issues that I love to talk about. I love to talk about trauma. I love to talk about healing. I love to talk about mental illness. I love to talk about dogs. Mm -hmm. I love to talk about hope and forgiveness. Like, it's all in there. It's just incredible. So, I, you know, with memoirs, it's always tricky because – I never want to give too much away. I don't want to be like, oh my God, that time, this, blah, blah, and this huge thing. You're like, well, gee, Lisa, you just ruined it. No, I've been doing this long (laughs) enough, (laughs) Julie, I know not to do that. Your story starts in New York City, April 16th, 1996, and you're in your kitchen for two days off and on sleeping while the stove is on and the water's boiled down and there's smoke, and and you had a nervous breakdown. Take Mm -hmm. us back to that time
1: in your life. I moved to New York, probably for the wrong reasons, right after college um, and thought that, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural area and I wanted to be a big city kid and I moved and, um, didn't really understand. I didn't understand mental health for sure. I don't think anybody in 96 did. I think it was just sort of like, why are you such a downer kind of thing? Um, and so I really was struggling and didn't know what it meant, what was going on. I had this bad boyfriend who would, you know, come and go as he pleased and leave me devastated in a way that was I knew too intense um and then you know it 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 kind of I kept trying and trying to continue with my life with my job which paid me peanuts in New York City and I could barely afford food and you know I finally just was like I can't this is not sustainable and and then, you know, as it happens, you know, your body gives out. Your body is, is the one telling you what's going on. So, my, my mind was trying and trying to keep going and keep this. You know, I'm a college graduate now, and I'm doing this now, and I'm in the city now. And, and I just it's like, I can't. Um, and so, I really did just collapse and, um, you know, kind of was in and out of consciousness for a while before I had enough, um, you know, wherewithal to, to reach out to my mom. She came and picked me up. And even though she didn't know exactly what was going on or what to say, she knew what to do. Um, and she got me in the car and said, go quit your job. You're coming home. And, um, I think partly it was, she knew enough because she was a high school teacher and she saw teenagers in distress and knew when it was dangerous and knew that I was there. And she, she took me home and, um, you know, I basically just sort of continued to collapse at home, but at least I was safe there. They could check on me and um, it, it it got worse before it got better. Um, And, you know, I think in in the mid nineties, we didn't have the vocabulary that we do now. For mental health and they just thought, why is she so negative? And why is she always sleeping? And <laughs> why is you know and, and I think it took a lot of research on their part um to figure out like, okay, this is something. And then they, you know, got me into a psychiatrist and you know, this woman who I've met forty five minutes once in my life, never met her again, changed the whole trajectory of my life by diagnosing me with depression in that time and I was like obviously I was like no (laughs) but I knew knew she was right and it was kind of a relief to have um a name for it and to know that this was not I'm not the only person out here who's struggling like this because it's so isolating and you feel so disconnected from everyone and everything that it was nice to know that okay well maybe this is not because there's something terribly wrong with me. During that time,
0: you were full of negative self-talk, but it was it was just so automatic. Oh, yeah. And it stems from your, the abuse you received, which we'll get into from your brother, mm-hmm. that those voices were just always there. And it wasn't even something that you were aware of until later on. Talk to us a little bit about, about those voices.
1: It's a really... Very difficult thing to notice when it's something you've just always done. Um, You know, the negative self-talk has probably been the hardest nut for me to crack, um, you know, as an adult. But as as a young person, it was in such high gear that every single thing I did, even if it was good, my brain would twist it to, well, it's because you're conceited and it's because you're this, that, you know, would, it would, it was just this automatic thing. And it, you know, I, I constantly thought that people were looking at me with disdain and disgust. And if that, if I ever got a sign that maybe somebody wasn't, I was so desperate for that, that I would sort of lose myself in it. And you know it was it was constant and i also just didn't know that that was what i was doing and i didn't know also that everybody else didn't do that um that right. not everybody else lived this life of feeling utterly um you know deflated by everything <laughs> you know the simplest thing the simplest thing could send me into a tailspin and i would just have to try to hang on by my fingernails and you know it I didn't know I was doing it. I didn't know that that wasn't how everybody was. And, you know, it took me really sinking and sinking and sinking to even start to notice or have the, I don't even know if it's like bravery or, or insight to look in and notice like, okay, yeah, I guess I am doing that. Like, that's probably not great, you know, but um, it, you know, it's, it's when you, when you, come up and you've um just heard you are pretty worthless and nobody likes you and you know from even you know just one person in your household I was not hearing that from my parents you know I was only hearing it from my brother but unfortunately my brother was the one I was with most of the time um and I just I didn't know it. I had internalized it this really
0: got me it, so heartbreaking. Quote, many older brothers are mean and unhappy. I didn't think it was out of the ordinary that mine called me names, bitch, whore, loser, idiot, ugly, weirdo, fuckface. And he hit me hard. He spit in my face. He pushed me down. He stepped on me. He pulled my hair. He chased me with knives. And I'm just so... I... Was I literally want to find him and I want to murder him. Like, I'm so angry. Yeah. I was like, what that like? And then I'm like, what the hell is wrong with your parents? I'm assuming I, I'm not alone in this. And it's interesting because Sarah Hodgson, and I mentioned this to Julie before the show, who I had on. If you haven't heard her, go listen to her. She's fabulous here on Dog Eared and many other places. She loved Julie's book. And she, I said she could ask a question, and this relates. So, Sarah says also there were times in your book when i felt so angry at your mom at your family at your brother then through your forgiveness i felt like gathering gathering them all in my arms and singing sweet hymn until their inner child felt safe understood and calm and i'm just thinking no i just want to connect with them. not your parents i i do want to sit them down and have a laugh but your brother so she has two questions um which we're going to get to later i do want to Say it's different how people come to it, right? Like you have this forgiveness where I have this venom.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and I realize it's not my experience, and the venom just eats us alive, right? Mm-hmm. But just talk to us about what it was like to share this. was it cathartic and 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 what it was like not to like just lash out and as a grown up, just run them over with your car. I mean that's like, you know yeah. Seriously, yeah. like don't tell me. Yeah. Do
1: not tell me where your brother lives. I mean, I'm just <laughs> Yeah, I know.
0: Well, I'm here's the thing double. is that,
1: you know, we all in in families, right? We all have a defined role. And mine right. was never it was never um well, that's not true. I was going to say it's it, it was never rage and it was never it was rage, but it really only directed at my mother because in my family, you you know, if I were rageful at my dad and my brother, you know, there was a lot of sort of like inherent misogyny in my family. That I think is just part of the times. But, um, you know, I in the process of writing the book, you know, obviously I had to do a lot of work. And I went home one summer and I said to both my parents, like, where were you? What the hell? You know? And you tell them how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah. And they knew some of it. I mean, my dad was there the time that my brother knocked me unconscious. And, you know, I had like, to get go to the hospital and get stitches in my head. And, you know, he saw that. um, But, you know, the way that he dealt with it was um, a lot of screaming and, and yelling at him, which to me scared me more because I was like, he's just going to be more mad at me and be near the next time and try to hide it from my parents, which he was very, you know, adept at. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, conversation with my parents really, I just said, you know, what, what happened? Where were you? And they honestly, just didn't have the perspective I did. They didn't know what was going on. My dad was gone because he was working nonstop. And my mom, um, you know, literally hid under the bed. I think I write that in the book that, you know, she she's saw somewhere on a TV show about sibling rivalry that kids do it for their parents' attention. And so if you withdraw the thing they're trying to get, then they won't try to get it and they won't fight. And such flawed logic, because obviously what that did was leave me to the wolves.
0: I mean, this was like out and out sibling abuse.
1: Yeah. Well, and I always say that I think sibling violence is the last sort of sanctioned form of domestic violence because, you know, kids hit people are like, oh, kids hit each other. And I always say that um, that sibling violence is the last sanctioned form of domestic violence because kids will hit each other. And I have two kids and there was maybe one or two times where they lashed out at each other, but I'll tell you what, I stopped it right there. And I said, absolutely not. Do we ever, ever lay hands on each other? We use our words and, you know, all that that. But I think most families do now, but I, it, you know, not all, not all. I think, um, in my family, there was an underlying, um, anger and violence and, um, almost like fear that I know my brother and I felt and I know he fed on. But another part of it was that when I was writing it, I had to think about him as a person outside of me and what was going on with him when he was a child that made it so that he was so furious and angry and and scared and insecure. And, you know, there are answers for that, that I, that I know, you know, in terms of just his not feeling good enough and him feeling like, where's my dad? He's never home. Right. Um, So that was healing for me to try to, once I sort of got through the, I was going to say once I got through the anger, but you know, what's interesting is it, it is very hard for me to get angry at my brother in his presence Maybe that's just an abuse mm-hmm. or abuse thing. I can do it when I'm not there, but when I am with him, it's I, I'm st- I revert back to I want to be his pal, um, which is why I live very far away from where I grew up. Um, and you know, I just I just minimize it because you know there's a there's a role there that I I still don't really know how to not go into. Although I'm getting better, um, but yeah, it was it was very challenging and then also i think for me you know i i'm still working kind of tirelessly i'm trying to untraumatize my brain um and and i'm having success in new, some new modalities that are really interesting and so oh really yeah yeah new emdr which is
0: Change Nice. Yeah. I've heard good things about that. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it's, I don't know, I figure this is sort of my job is to heal and to not pass this on to my kids um, and to, you know, help them feel safe in the world where I wasn't.
0: Did your brother read the book? And if yes, what was his reaction?
1: Um, He did read the book and it took him a while. I sent it to him and he didn't read it. And then I sent him a hard copy of it and I didn't hear anything for several months. And then um, out of the blue, he posted on social media a photo of the cover, I think it was. And he said, I just finished my sister's book. I'm so proud of her. It's amazing, except it made me cry and I'm sitting in the middle of the airport. And, and, you know, to me, I was, I remember I was sitting at my desk and I saw it and I pushed back from the desk and put both my arms up in the air. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Because to me that felt, you know, he has apologized for our wife um, and said, you know, I, I know I wasn't a very good brother. And I, I kind of thought like, I kind of thought like I was waiting for that, but, You know, when that came it was really hollow. I was like, okay, that didn't do what I thought it was gonna do.
0: That that was it? My head's about to explode. I wasn't a very good brother.
1: Well he we were at a bar, you know, it was very typical. I mean and I don't think he I don't know I don't know how he remembers it. Um, you know, everybody remembers things differently. I mean he remembered all the scenes that I wrote about. Um but i think from his perspective he was tortured and i was the closest whipping post right and so he wasn't thinking about, i don't honestly i don't know what he was thinking but but you know when he read that read the book and he posted this lovely thing before the book even came out my thought was there are many ways to atone for bad behavior and this to me was a really beautiful one because he knew how much it meant to me to have this book out in the world. And he could have said, this makes me look bad. Um, and he didn't, he never said that he, he, we don't talk about it. And, um, you know, when I was there recently, I was talking to other people about the book and he was in, in the room and that was a little awkward. Um, but he's never tried to stop me. He's never tried to you know say anything about it which to me is that's very honorable and that tells me that he he's willing to to really sort of take the take the hit right <laughs> for all the take take the truth and and not refute it and let me have my time to tell my story
0: yeah i think that's so important
1: i'm a believer that traumatic
0: events can lead to things like depression. I think trauma can cause mental illness. And I wonder, have you ever wondered if you would have had this depression if you didn't have all this trauma? Well, I'll tell you, I think about it
1: all the time, what kind of person I would have been if I'd grown up with a different sibling or even different parents. I don't think I would have had this depression. I don't think I would have had this struggle. I don't think I would have had this persistent negative self-talk. I mean, maybe a little bit, but that's your brother. His That's his voice. Yeah, And you mentioned earlier that
0: that the rage you had against your mother, you had rage against yourself because yeah. he planted it there. 100%.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was it was in every direction radiating, except for my dog.
0: People are, isn't this a dog? <laughs> <laughs> this Am I on the wrong? Well, You're both on the same platform. No, this is dog. Is. We're going to get to the amazing dog. Yeah. I promise. Well, and,
1: you know, <laughs> even before Bunker, you know, it was like, you know, when I was a kid. I knew the dog didn't hate me and I knew the dog didn't think I was stupid and the dog acted like it really was happy to see me and liked me. And that was like, you know, I'm at the bottom of the well and that was the thinnest rope. But I was like, that's a rope. I'm going to hold on to it. And um, so that really saved me as a kid, you know, to have animals and these other sentient beings in my house who didn't think, I was annoying or worthless or stupid or, or ignored me or, you know, neglected me or were frustrated by me. Right. So that was when I was in my deepest depression and thinking like, uh, you know, nothing ever is going to help me. Um, The thought of getting a dog really changed it because I was able to think, well, That I genuinely know will feel good. Like nothing feels good right now. Nothing like waking up doesn't feel good. Um, You know, anything being outside, even sleeping was nothing felt good. Nothing felt even remotely. Okay. Um, And so I thought, well, if I have a dog, maybe if it's just me and him, it'll start to feel like maybe I have the strength. And, you know, there we go again to my mom, my mom's credit. She was like, okay, let's do this. Like she is a doer. She will, let's, let's, she will go and do this with you or for you. And so we, she's like, let's go, we're going to go get a dog today. And so,
0: you know, that, that
1: absolutely saved my life.
0: It did. And Bunker found you. I love how you write about that. Mm-hmm. And he licked your nose, and you're like, "Yep, he, here he is." He's like, "Here I am. Let's go." He's like, "Where you been? We've been waiting for you." You know, I also love in the book. Your writing style is so incredible, and you talk about how on the same day that you were, or that few couple of days, you're having that nervous breakdown is when, when you look at the breeder's journals and stuff is when Bunker was born. And just the way you go back and forth and him being helpless and you being helpless and eating your mom and him meeting his mom and and being a newborn. And Mm -hmm. it was just beautiful. I mean, the way that you wrote this book was so incredibly eloquent and just every word was
1: perfect. I mean, you were a really gifted writer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it was amazing and it's, you know, it, it made me believe in spirit and in the universe having our back because I didn't notice or know any of those dates until I started writing the book. And then I was like, you know, let me just go back and look, like, that's what was wow. the day I called my mom? Okay. What was it? And I was like, oh my God, that's Bunker's birthday. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? And then oh, yeah. it, it all kind of started to fall into place that, you know, that was our trajectory and it it you know that that is one of those moments where I'm just like, yeah you know this was he is my my soul twin my spirit twin whatever you want it to be and it's my turn in this lifetime to ha- only have him for 11 years and <laughs> you know and it's not enough it's not no. enough at all and it you know and it's sad too because I've got so many I have three dogs now and I I I kind of think I keep getting them because I keep thinking like maybe it'll be (laughs) like him again, and they're beautiful and amazing. But you know, um,
0: I know what you mean. I got my bunker here. I got my Mr. Baby Blue. My pity. I I looking at every night we're cuddling and I think I don't understand how am I going to go on like when he's not here but yeah. we have to right we've all had that extra special soulmate dog and I love too how like I heard you in an interview talking about how you know your husband knew that your dog was your soulmate going into yeah. this oh, so yeah. my poor husband you know we've been together 25 years we just got blue seven seven years ago so you know he didn't realize he was marrying somebody with a dog With a that's soul- so funny yeah yeah, yeah yeah
1: he's like you know step aside for a while Because we got, we got a, yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely part of the deal. And, and, and it was beautiful because he really loved and respected that relationship. And they also had their own, their own connection, but he was, you know, first and foremost in my mind in all things with Bunker.
0: It was so hard. And again, I don't want to give too much away, but you, you have depression, right? Which is a constant struggle and Bunker was immensely helpful. And then Bunker had some physical issues that were pretty flipping serious. And I'm reading this book going, Are you freaking kidding me? If there is a God, like what are you doing to this poor beautiful woman and her dog? Like, how much, like, how much can one person take? Yeah. So this is up to you how much you want to share. Because again, I want people to get the book. You have to get this book. Again, Dog Medicine, How My Dog Saved Me from Myself. We're not anywhere near done. I just wanted to put the title out there. Yeah. Because I'm thinking to myself, this is this is almost like a movie. Like it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's so heart wrenching. Yeah. And as you're living it, you're like this, what the hell? <laughs> like this, this is terrible. <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, at the time I was in, you know, I was recovering and I was doing better and I had sort of, you know, I'd found a new city and I'd relaunched myself. And, you know, when I got this devastating news about bunker and his health and i thought well i mean it was very clear to me like if he dies i'm not gonna stay um which is scary you know for those of us who have our our soul dogs you know something could happen to them but and, and i was not at the point in my life where i thought i would survive losing him um right and so it was all or nothing you know so it at the time it shook me, but it was also very clear, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be here without him. And I wasn't going to be cheated out of that lifetime because he was only seven or eight months old when he had that diagnosis. And so, oh, you know, yeah. it, and what was beautiful about it was this new community that I had landed in um, rallied around me in a way i had never experienced before i mean it still gives me chills like they had a fundraiser at our house you know we were all in our early 20s and you know they bought a keg and put a picture of bunker on it and all my friends came over and put money in a basket and i i just remember feeling like what what why is why are people being so nice and what did i like <laughs> what did i you know what did I, of course i'm sure my mind was like well they just like bunker they don't really care about you but you know, it was very much that these people cared around me and that was new and beautiful and hard. And, um, but you know, it, it, you know, in the book, the stakes seem high because they were for me. It was, Oh yeah. I was not going to go on without him. If he, if something happened to him, it was just not gonna, it was not going to work. And then, and then, you know, when he did Pass away, um, you know. I was pregnant with my second child. I was seven months pregnant, and and so I'm working on the next book, which is How Do I Live with Adam? How do you live with Adam? And it's oh, yeah. I need that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, or someday, yeah. And
1: and it's a really hard one to write. It's a really hard one to write, but you know, it's really it's it's continuing with the healing that he started. That he was the catalyst of.
0: It's really amazing. I'm going to go back to Sarah Hodgson for a moment uh, to her questions. This one isn't so much a question. This is just cute. She says, I love to learn your dog was in your wedding. My dog, Whoopsie, was in mine too. <laughs> I love the name Whoopsie. So cute. I so want to rename one of my dogs, Whoopsie. Uh, this is, uh, and you mentioned your family a moment ago. So uh, she asks, how did Bunker mature and tolerate your girls as your family expanded uh, can you talk a little uh, bit of the dogs you've loved since Bunker? Um, mm-hmm. And did you ever long for another retriever? Mm-hmm. Oh, and then I have another question after that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. she just writes. She writes great questions. I yeah. just all off the top of my head. I'm all emotion. I'm all emotion.
1: I'm like, damn. But that's just how I. That's how I. I do it. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Same the same way. Um, you know, Bunker was. It was funny when when my first daughter was born. Um, he. <laughs> He didn't come downstairs for like a day. <laughs> he stayed upstairs <laughs> and, you know, he would come out to go eat and go to the bathroom, but like he really sort of retreated and that's hard because I thought he, you know, was he upset, but then he very quickly was like, Oh, this is my baby, <laughs> you know? And oh, he would, yeah. I would literally use him as like a little bed for her. And I would, I would, lie her on him and he would just lay there. And he was, he was very, he was very verbal. He would talk a lot. He would howl. And,
0: um, oh. you know,
1: she, she got, got used to that and they would, he, when she would cry, he would howl and it was, it was very sweet.
0: Um, Oh, that is so
1: sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I have a retriever now I have my first full golden retriever since bunker. And, um, I'll tell you, I knew that she was my dog when, so it was a friend of mine who bred her dog and she, she was supposed to have five puppies and she, the, the, the mom gave birth to five and they were all sort of white golden retrievers. And then the mom was still laboring and they they were like, what's going on? And then she gave birth to a sixth that was red because bunkers. Oh, nice. and, um, <laughs> and then the mom took, took my current dog whose name is sunny um took her out to the yard to try to bury her um and my friend was like that puppy's not you know not dead (laughs) we're gonna bring it back in (laughs) the mom i think the instinct was like you know this is i don't know for whatever reason wanted to, to leave that one out and so she brought her back in and the mom was fine with her but um I knew the minute my friend told me about this one unexpected red golden that people wanted to toss out or that the mom wanted to toss out. I was like, that's my dog. (laughs) So She's (laughs) she's here now and she's amazing. She's like a world-class cuddler. And I just, I do really love love her. I do love her. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Now the other question that Sarah Hodgson, again, uh, she's amazing that she asked was, uh, what age did you share your emotional truth with your daughters? I assume they have read the book, and how do you feel they have grown from your processing the scars of your past? Mm,
1: yeah. Well, you know that one was interesting because my older daughter, she's nine. Well, she's almost nineteen. She's in college, and um, she wanted to read the book when she was probably fifteen, and she started it, and she's like, "I don't think I, I don't think I can read this yet." And then, so I was like, "A hundred percent respect that." you can decide whenever you want to read it. And I think she finally read it when she was 17 or 18. And, um, you know, she, she's in it because she was born in the end and she has an amazing line at the end of the book after bunker died. The first thing she said, the first thing she said to us when we said he'd gone was she said, well, who's going to protect me from the monsters? And, I would thought I don't same girl. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, the answer was me, you know, I, I'm going to do that for you now because I, I know how now. And, and that's, and I think also my forthrightness with my mental health and also my real sensitivity to daughters and girls growing up and, knowing probably to a fault that they're worried about things, you know, sometimes I think they're upset about something or worried about something and they aren't at all. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think it's, I know with, you know, with my older daughter who has read the book, it really deeply connected us and she's proud, you know, she's proud of the fact that her mom did this thing and, Um, that feels good. And then my younger daughter hasn't read it yet. She has told me she's 15 and she said, I'm scared to read it. And I said, you don't have to read it until, you know, ever, you don't have to read ever, but until you feel like you're ready and, um, you know, and it'll make you proud of dad. (laughs) Oh, I love, I love your husband. (laughs) He's amazing. I know know. he's a keeper. So, um, yeah, it's, it, Honestly, having struggled with my own mental health issues and own traumas has actually, I think, made me a really good parent (laughs) because I'm not afraid to say, you know, that must really hurt or are you okay? Or, you know, how are you feeling about this? Or even just notice that something's off and not be scared of it. I think a lot of times... I know in my family it was always sort of like if you smiled, people would my you know people would go, oh okay, she's fine. But that's not always the case. These kids are smart; they know how to put on a smile to try to fool you when they're really suffering. And so, you know, that radar that I think somebody who um, is just in tune with it—you don't have to have struggled with any kind of mental illness or depression or any, anything—but you know that that I think really makes a difference as a parent of particularly girls and teenagers and you know boys too obviously but you know that's just been my experience with two daughters
0: oh yeah and how do you manage your depression now and especially i would you know after bunker died i mean i i I
1: believe you wrote in the book did you write about that in the book
0: yeah i mean i think
1: i think i left it pretty open-ended sort of like i didn't know how i was going to be but you know but he taught me so much. I mean, and he also, you know, he taught me that I was going to be okay. I think that, you know, that is one of the things that animals help us do is see more deeply and kindly into ourselves, you know, that like I have the capacity to love really deeply. I have the capacity to care that, you know, I am strong and I can handle things like a devastating diagnosis and take care of it. And, you know, those kinds of things. And also I had grown up a lot, but, you know, to answer the question about depression, you know, it's, it's. Re- will be, and has been sort of a lifelong battle. It's gotten better as I've gotten older. Um, but, you know, I think that's really probably only because I still do the work. I still. Yes. Do that's the the key. Work. I still seek out healing and connection and try to really be mindful of how I'm doing and how I'm feeling and noticing without judgment, how, you know, my heart feels and my, you know, so I think, I don't know. I think for me, it's, it's a lifelong thing. And like I said earlier, you know, um, EMDR changed my brain. I, there's no question um, that it, it changed it. it and, you know, it's kind of silly, but Prince Harry wrote about EMDR and, and psilocybin and those kinds of treatments for his PTSD as sort of lifting a veil. And that's exactly what it felt like for me with EMDR. And, you know, I just, what I did was reprocessed some of those n- enormously traumatic events, including the one I, we discussed earlier where, you know, I was knocked unconscious, hit the, hit a wall and my brother pushed me in. um reprocessing that one. And, and because I think, you know, deep down, I still kind of thought it was my fault, or I had done something wrong, or I was just being a pest. Um And really, re going back into the brain, there's all this, they don't really understand how it works yet. But going back into the brain and understanding that, you know, there is some sort of fight or flight switch that is impossible to turn off unless you go back to the source of where that was and you live your life from that fight flight flee whatever it is you know all of those and 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 I had been um even though I've been doing so much work and so that has really helped me um you know I I don't think that I'll ever I don't know. I mean, I'm still on medication. I don't I don't know that I'll ever go off of it.
0: I was thinking about the fight the fight or flight. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things to read in the book, other than that paragraph at the beginning about how your brother abused you, and it's just so heart-wrenching. Is that time you were in your room and you locked the door and he's beating at the door and the door is vibrating and you're sitting on your bed. You're like a little girl curled up against the wall. And he freaking broke the door down. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how do you move past always looking over your shoulder? Because I would think that would instill such a sense of having fear oh, yeah. all the
1: time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll tell you, the time I noticed that that was, in my, that was instilled in me was when I was in college and I was talking to a guy and he went, he had like bangs, like you know, long bangs, and he went to pull pull them away from his face, and I flinched because I thought he was going to hit me. It was in my body, like I didn't actually think he was going to hit me, like in my mind, but my body <laughs> flinched, and I oh, yeah. and I was like, "What was that?" And I, I mean, I knew that that was what my body was doing, but you know, um, I, I I did have that, and then it also, you know, translates into. A really warped sense of love and relationship. You know that somebody, you know, that's where you run into somebody treating you like garbage, and you thinking either that it's your fault or that you're not good enough, or you know, doing everything you can to maintain that terrible relationship because you think this is just sort of you're so worthless that you need something. Um, and I think that's not. What-
0: yeah, or finding something good like you did and then having an instant of self sabotage, which I, I want oh, yeah. people to read the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, I, I related to that so much because I have a passive sex and love addiction. I, I totally related to that. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's
1: interesting because I think that's where, you know, trauma and addiction are so intertwined. And um, I, you know, my addiction surfaced with food. And so I would, you know, I remember as a little kid, you know, there was the dogs helping me and there was also sweets. And so I um, was a binge eater. I never was bulimic or anything, but I was a binge eater for 40 years to 45 years. Oh, wow. And um, the EMDR has, has changed that. The the first time I don't reach for food the way that I have automatically since I was like nine years old. Um, and so I think there's, you know, there's so much link there between the ways that we self-soothe, right? There's the way that we cope is by, you know, we know these, that we have this toolkit of this is how we're going to help ourselves feel better. And you know what? Good for us because this is how we, you know, this is how we survived. And, you know, my, one of my first sort of eating coach people was like, you know, Young Yu was very resourceful and smart in that this was how she soothed herself. She had to find something, and so you You have to absolutely. So same with you. You know, you have to find this is this thing that like this made you feel worthy and good, and so damn straight you're going to use it. And so it's um, it's really interesting to make all of those connections, and then also to just try so hard to be you know easy on yourself in in the ways in the ways you live
0: well i just hope you're not see here's the thing like i would hate to think you're beating yourself up for like bingeing or self sabotaging or any of the things that you've done to survive because you you had to cope yeah. right like yeah. you're saying yeah i'm curious you didn't share that about the bingeing in the book what was the thought process
1: well you know i think it's really interesting that i didn't um, and I think the reason that I didn't was because I was still doing it and it still felt like a dirty secret.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense. You know, there are definitely things
1: I didn't include in the book cause they would have been, you know, too harmful for other people. Um, but you know, I think that for me was one that I was still sort of sitting on psychically <laughs> because it felt too shameful. And, but you know, the very first thing I ever had published when I was like 22, 23 living in Seattle was called food and it was about binge eating. And so it's, yeah. So the the second book has a lot more of that in it because it was sort of, you know, for me, I had, you know, this one thing that I felt such shame around and that was it. Um, And undoing that has been, a lot, <laughs> um, and I think it's it's really it's so it's so common and prevalent that you know we have a weird relationship with food because of how wonky our culture is about women's bodies, and so you know I it's uh, I think it's sort of more of a commentary on what I was ready to face—the fact that it's not in dog medicine. You know, if I look, if I were to look through, I could probably find a couple instances where I kind of mentioned that I go home and have 10 cookies,
0: <laughs> you know? But, oh, you know, it's fine. I didn't even think of that because I'm like, well, I, I, I 10
1: cookies or I'm eating it. No, <laughs> it does no. occur to me that that's a lot. I think I might have a problem too. With it being a disorder is that you end up feeling that way every day. I would go to bed every day feeling like... Distended, and I think if I had, um, you know, I don't think I have the obesity gene. I think if I did, I would have absolutely been obese. But you know, I I, I had enough lucky stuff in the genetics department, and also um, would sort of not eat other healthy things, just eat shit and a lot of it. So you know, it was it it wasn't good. And I I know I'm still healing from that, but I've made the EMDR is the first thing I just always thought I'm always going to have to deal with this. I'm always going to just be overeating secretly to calm my nerves. And, um, I think that EMDR is the first time I thought, Oh my God, like did this actually help? So,
0: mean, I have so many people. I have, I mean, I literally, I have a, I friend with anorexia. I have a friend with DIDNOS. Two friends with complex PTSD. I seem to attract into my life a lot of people with complex issues and trauma. And so I'm going to tell them about this. I've also been very curious about the psilocybin. Did you try that? I didn't. I
1: didn't. I, I mean, I think if I found... A practitioner that I trusted, I might do it. I have friends who've done it. I think that'd be really cool. I've heard amazing things about it. I mean, the EMDR took like a year. So if I could do it in a couple hours with psilocybin, that'd be a lot more efficient and (laughs) cost effective.
0: (laughs) I want to jump into just how magical dogs are before we go today. And I know you've said you learned a lot of things from Bunker and you've shared some, share, share some more. The science is catching up to
1: what I think many of us have known for a long time, which is that dogs sense when we're struggling. There was just an article last week about how dogs can, can smell stress. And so that's how they, you know, like therapy dogs, that's how they know who to go to. Um, And I think that, you know, it felt very magical at the time that, you know, there was a moment in the book where, you know, I had gotten the puppy, I had gotten Bunker, and I had a re- few really good days, and then I started to crash again, and I was sitting on the couch just thinking, like, what am I doing? Like, now I have a dog on top of feeling terrible, and he noticed from across the room that I was struggling and he just walked over and sat on my feet and leaned against my legs and looked up at me with this ridiculously adorable face. And I thought, okay, I have a choice here. I can decide that he just noticed that I was struggling and he came over to help or I can decide it was a coincidence and that nothing matters. And I was like, I have to decide the first, I have to decide that he noticed. And because I did really believe in it. And because it was true, it was what he did. He did that my whole life, not just to me too. I mean, I have, I mean, he did it with other friends of mine who he knew were struggling. He would just sort of be close to them and lean on them. Um, He was extraordinarily perceptive that way and special. And he was also very, very calm. He was calm. Mm. And it may have been because of the ailment he had that he just couldn't run around the way that, you know, the average puppy could, but he was just very, very calm. And so, you know, for me, the, the act of noticing that someone is struggling and not going in and saying, what's wrong? Let me give you my opinion and my thoughts and my advice and da, 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 instead of just going in and just being like, Hey, you know, you know that kind of being there in solidarity is is um, what dogs have in spades, which is they just want to be with you and they want to, you know, be your companion and your carer, and in return we we do the same for them. And then also, you know, I do think I've learned with my subsequent dogs that how important it is to to really do 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 training well, because when you train the dogs, then, you know, they understand that you're the boss and they don't have to worry about taking care of everything. You've got it and they can relax a little bit when you're the alpha. And then, um, when you start to, you know, teach them these commands and stuff, you start to have a language, um, that can be really beautiful.
0: What are some of your favorite memories of Bunker?
1: Mm. well so many we used to go to these beautiful off leash parks in Seattle and I have a picture of him standing in Lake Washington and the water's like up to his chest and he's just looking at the camera and I I dare anybody to look at that photo and not feel that there is a very deep soul Buddha dog (laughs) looking at you (laughs) Um and you know, just watching his joy made me have joy. Um, and it was not hard to come by, you know, him me coming home and me going for walks with him and um I have video footage of him and I I used to do a video journal. This was in like nineteen ninety nine. And I have this footage of me talking and then you can see him come get on the bed and sit by me. And, um, those are really precious to look back at cause you can see the healing in action. Uh, and then, you know, really so many amazing uh, snowshoeing with him. He loved the snow. We used to snowshoe in Seattle, um, you know, walking with him and then also how incredibly gentle he was with Rachel, my baby, when she was born, my baby mm-hmm. college. And, um, he was just incredibly in tune with her. And yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, the thing I miss the most about him is just his presence because there was a calm that came over me when he was there. I was like, okay, things are going to be okay. I got him. And I haven't had that since. And it may just have been a timing thing. It may have been because he was spectacular, which he was. Um, so, you know, I don't know, but that's what I miss the most. And I try to conjure that sometimes, you know, and just sort of really remember, you know, sitting in that feeling of feeling utterly safe with him by my side and seen in a way that I had had not been in my whole life.
0: Are there things that help you conjure that and feel that feeling?
1: You know, I think writing about him really helped because I've spent so much time, In a world where he's still there, Um, and and then meditation is helpful too. I I keep wishing for a dream where he really, very clearly comes to me, Um, and I haven't had one yet. I've had a I had a dream where a different dog with Bunker's soul came to me, and that was really interesting because I knew it was him, but it wasn't him. So that was that was really special. So yeah. I mean, my memories of him are all just really, really solid, peaceful, you know, no fuss memories. Really beautiful.
0: That is so nice. People listen to the show, probably figure out that my pity blue is my bunker. I'm getting teared up just thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And he's still here. He's seven and a half. And every morning around 430 in the morning, he jumps on the bed. And he just comes and puts his big, heavy head right on my chest or under my arm. He loves to, like, smush his nose. And I'm thinking, like, this is the nicest feeling. I don't know how I'm not going to – how am I going to live without this? This has just become our thing. Yeah. And it, I just – it's so hard. Is I mean, I'm in the moment with them. And my husband's like, hon, you got to be in the moment. You got to be mindful. You got – all right, fine. I don't understand. <laughs> he's my bunker. You know, that's how no, I explain it I
1: now. Know. He's he's I my know. bunker baby. Yeah, it's it's honestly it's tragic how short dogs live. It's not okay. Yes. It does make you savor each each moment more because of that. And and you know, I think for me with, with Bunk it was like he set me on this trajectory that in order to honor him and his life and his sort of legacy, I have to continue on. Um, Which is just being so grateful that he ever came and he ever happened. And um, you know, it's funny because he wasn't much of a snuggler at all. And I was always sort of like, come on. And he, he just was not, he leaned and he wanted to be right with me, but he didn't. Like if I tried to lie down and snuggle next to him, he's like, not comfortable. And I think it was because he very clearly saw me as the alpha. My current goal every morning does a similar thing to what Blue does. She gets on the bed, she stands over me and stares at me until I lift <laughs> and she gets under the covers and we spoon for like 15 minutes oh. and she'll like my hands. And I'm the same. It's the best way to wake up. It's such a beautiful way to re enter the world every morning.
0: It really is I have one more question because you're such a gifted writer uh, that Sarah wants to know she said, I am eager to take your online writing course. I see you offered one in January I just missed it. How often do you offer these courses and are you available for private coaching? Oh that'd be a dream
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um well I teach I teach the class pretty much year round I usually do like a six week session the class is. Um, very, it's generative. So all you do is you come with a pen and paper and an open mind and heart. And I read a poem and the poem is the prompt. And I give you, you know, sort of advice on where to start. And then we just write by hand for 15 minutes. And then we read aloud to each other right away with no commentary. There's no critique. There's no nothing. It's really just a matter of, it's sort of like, I think of it like, A yoga session you know it's like you're going into practice you're practicing and so i use it that way and and it's very um communal and non-judgmental and it's the way that i get a lot of my writing down on paper because when you're writing by hand the the something happens there's some sort of alchemy that the computer skips right so when you're writing by hand you have to slow down a little bit because you can't write as fast and also you can't delete so you just sort of find a little bit more of a rhythm um so we do that i do that once a week for you know, sessions run from four to six weeks and um at, you know the one on mondays online so anybody could come and it's a really oh, awesome. wonderful practice and then yeah i do do i do do individual coaching um for manuscripts and that kind of thing but i you know i think I always coach people on there's a point when you're writing when really all you need is a cheerleader. And I can, I can be that for you, but you know, it's, it's not until the very end that you may um, want someone to really go in with you and dive. I think one of the things that i most, um, I understand the best with writing is structure. I understand how to make a book unputdownable, which is you know, it took me a long time to figure out, how that works and it's
0: well you did that oh thank you. <laughs> thank
1: you yes
0: i could not put this down and i couldn't stop listening either oh, <laughs> for like two you. days my my daughter was like hey mom where's I? i'm like ask your dad i cannot stop listening to this book. <laughs> could you tell that i had a cold <laughs> i had a
1: terrible cold while i was recording it
0: Oh, no, I just thought you had such a beautiful voice. But, you know, it's funny because when you got on here, I thought, oh, she sounds a little different. Yeah. So, okay. So you had, a, I had yeah, like the
1: cold, the worst cold. I, the, we had three days at the studio for me to record it, which I had to audition for my own audiobook book because what? I think they don't, you know, they don't know if maybe the writer has an annoying voice, but um, I got very sick in the first day that we recorded. I lost my voice by like noon and we had to stop. And so it was very stressful, but got through it.
0: you were saying that you you do you do know how to have a book you don't want to put it down that's that's great i mean you can coach people on that that's pretty spectacular yeah
1: it's not easy but it's doable and it's just you have to really be able to and that's like for me when i'm writing that's that's at the end you know or to the last third of the writing process where you start to figure out like okay how can this structurally succeed um so yeah it's fun
0: now Now, is there anything that we didn't touch on? Because I know, like, because I love to talk about the trauma and the healing. And, I, I? I, you know, people are probably like, why didn't you talk more about dogs? But listen, this is your journey. This is, and Bunker was a huge part of it. Yeah. And if it wasn't for him, you really would have. I
1: wouldn't
0: be here. He really was medicine.
1: Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah, a thousand percent. And, you know, the, you know, I, I talk about this in the next book and I'll say it here that, you know, the, the um, so the day he died on April 4th, 2007. And um, Mm. the next morning I woke up and, you know, waking up without him was, I just, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I kind of zombie like went into my office and I got on my computer and turned on email because I don't know what else you're going to do. And. Um, the first email I saw was an email that I had. I was a finalist in a writing contest that I had entirely forgotten I'd entered. And I was truly thinking I'm just going to give up on writing. Cause I, I, you know, I was pregnant and I had a toddler and I thought there's no chance. And I looked at that email and I'll never forget. I looked up into the right and I heard him say, tell our story.
0: And oh,
1: I was like, oh my god oh my god because I I my degree is in fiction writing I never thought I would be a memoirist or you know creative nonfiction. and so when I heard that I thought because I had tried to write a similar story as a novel it was it's different in a lot of ways but it that was my first book was I wrote this sort of practice book that was a novel about this girl and dogs and and then I was like, oh, my God, I have to write this. And and it was very much a directive from him in whatever way that came in. It was st- All I heard was tell our story. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try.
0: I'm so glad you did. When is the other book coming out?
1: <laughs> I'm dying yes, to read it. You, I, I don't know. Whenever I can get it finished. I mean, the hard part with this kind of writing is a lot of times you're living it. You know, like I am still living the healing and so at what point do you feel like you've gotten enough of a you know a growth arc to write a story and I think I'm I think I'm there um but it's you know it's it's a challenge for sure and there there are some difficult things in there that I have to get the courage to write about but it'll it'll come
0: (laughs) Well, Blue's seven and a half. Aww. So let's say he lives, let's say it is 16. Yes. <laughs> of okay. course. So you've got some time. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. But Benji's nine. So, you know, no. Um, anyway, you are unbelievably wonderful. Thank you. As are you. The book again, New York Times bestseller. I'm uh, completely like, yes. Uh, Julie Barton, Dog Medicine How My Dog Saved Me from Myself. And I love what Cheryl Strayed, New York Times bestselling author of Wild, said: "A beautiful, soulful, insightful book that simply has to be your next must-read and must-listen to." I did both. Mm, I think it. it's real. I do. I like to do that with yeah. the books for the show. Yeah. If they have an audio version, yeah. I I really really enjoyed it. So incredible. It was it was difficult. It was painful. I was mad at you for not you know running your brother over with the car, yeah. like I mentioned. <laughs> but but I hope that you know. But I get it, and 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 I. I, I say that I say it with a, with humor, but really, like, just to think of you as this beautiful, wonderful, smart, creative little girl going through this for nothing—like, th- it's like what? Yeah, yeah. It was really hard, but thank God for Bunker and thank God for your courage and strength and all the work you've done on yourself. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know,
1: you know, constantly working on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they're kind of all a work
1: in progress
0: <sighs> now how do we find all of your great stuff especially the book dog medicine
1: well the books um you know all the online re- t- retailers if you go to the penguin random house site they have a link you can search my name and they have a link to all the different ways you can buy it um you know I, it's in it's it's in bookstores now and then still but it, there's a lot of copies out there um, when did it come out 2016 yeah 26 well you know the story is actually pretty interesting i it initially i initially published it with a small press um oh that's
0: yeah yeah that
1: called think peace publishing because it was like a mental health imprint and i really liked the guy who was running that publishing house and it was very small but i felt very safe and i was i was pretty scared to to try to do the big ones because it just felt like i i don't know probably a self-esteem issue in there, but um, then uh, <laughs> then they came to me, you know, this agent that found me reached out to me before it came out with a small press and said, I really think I could sell this to one of the big houses. Would you be interested? And I said, you know, I thank you, but no, because I'm working with this other guy who I really like. And and then it came out and it did really well with the small press. And then they called again and she said, okay, well, what would you sell?" say if I told you I had an offer from Penguin to uh, publish this? I was like, um, hold please. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just saw, you know, we both knew the distribution from a smaller press was so- Yes, that's,
0: this book needs to be everywhere.
1: Yeah, there was a time that it was, it was, it was in all the airports and the bookstores. And and that was fun because I was like flying around for the tour and I would see my book. That is so
0: awesome, you know what I had to do with my book. I had a book come out in twenty nineteen with Skyhorse Publishing, and I was going to New York to do some interviews from at Sirius x m and so what I did is I put it on one of those you know where the, they put the books in the bookstore at the airport. I just put it there and took a picture, and I told you nice. it was really being sold there. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I just loved. I love the just pretend. I know. I know. I should have worked with you to get it to you know. Yeah. <laughs> to the word you can't put it well, down.
1: Yeah. You know, it's it's. Uh, you you just never know. You know, you never know what's gonna hit, and for whatever reason, I think Bunker had some divine intervention there. He's like. I'm going to help my mom It's you.
0: <laughs> your writing, your bravery, your everything. Now, did you give us your website? I want to make yeah, sure it's, that we have
1: it's, that. It's by Julie Barton, B-Y, like by Julie Barton. dot com. Yeah.
0: Well, Julie, this has been great. You're always welcome back here. I don't have a doggy door, but I say my doggy <laughs> door is
1: open. <laughs> I love it love it thank
0: here you so on dog much. eared and everybody please yeah this has been amazing please rate review subscribe and keep coming back thank you so
1: much thank you